right, good morning, people. We got things to do. Quit your yapping. We are gonna, <laughs> we are actually gonna really quick, we're gonna take our offering right now. Um, and just a little bit of a heads up. Um, year's running out, and um, you can see on the program kind of where we are budget-wise. It's not a huge, uh, huge freak out for us, but that's where we are. So if you call us your church home and you want to be a part of some end-of-the-year giving, there's ways you can do that. Um, and some of you, as you are setting up for your life next year, preparing for your life, um, you can actually go online, and if you want to make giving a, a, a more consistent thing for you, you can actually go online on our website and set that up for an automatic deal. And that would be a huge help for us as we plan and prepare for budget uh, for the new year. But um, just wanted to give you that heads up. A couple other quick things. Um, next Sunday, okay, let's, let's I want to just make sure we're all clear. Next Sunday morning, we do not meet, okay? We are meeting Sunday night. It's our, it's our Christmas Eve Eve service. And so instead of doing two different services on Sunday... Um, and just wearing out all of our volunteers, we're pushing everything to that evening. So um, if you show up, if you get all dressed up and you come here at 9.30, 45, whatever you guys end up coming, you're going to help us set up is what you're going to do. You're going to be moving things around. You're going to be running cords. You're going to get to know people that you don't know. So, um, but, so you're welcome to come um, next Sunday morning, but you're, we're going to be setting up. Um, and so also, that starts at 5, 5.30 uh, next Sunday night is Christmas Eve Eve. We've got invitations on your, on, your, on your chair. There's a stack of them outside. They're set up so that you can write a postcard, and then I'll mail it if you've never done that before. Um, that's where, for you, those of you who are, are new to mailing, you actually have to put a stamp on it. I know. It's not an email. So um, invite people. To, to that next Sunday night. And then um, the 30th of January, we are not meeting. Sorry, December. Thank you, Randy. Uh, we are also not meeting that. That's the Sunday we give all of our roadie crew and our children's team a week off. Um, I'll have a little bit of a video message prepared for you as we prepare for the new year. So this is our last Sunday of the year, Sunday morning of the year. So glad you're here. Um, we have a lot to talk about here. A couple other uh, quick announcements. Um, in the new year, we have a worship night in February that we're really excited about. Elliot's going to tell us more about that uh, soon. Uh, children's team is recruiting for the new year. We have a couple of, of openings that have opened up, especially in our toddler room. Um, and so if you would like to serve once a month um, in our toddler room, they are super cute toddlers. We only let cute toddlers here. Um, it's kind of a thing. So... We would love to have you a part of that. Um, and then we are starting immerse groups in January. And this is where we are going to read a chunk of the Old Testament called Chronicles. Um, and this is a, an actual taking five different books of the Old Testament and putting them together. And we are actually going to be teaching through the book of Daniel at the same time. So we encourage you, if you want to be a part of one of those, they're simple. Uh, let us know or grab a friend or two. Um, to uh, kind of commit to meeting together for eight weeks, once a week, and talking about the reading. Um, we would love to have you a part of that. You can buy those books today. And I don't think I'm missing anything else. Oh, there is actually, sorry, there is a women's retreat in early February. Details are coming out. It's like 60 bucks. It's a one-night thing, Friday night. I think it's the first Friday night in February. 
um, up in Estes Park. So we'd love for you to be a part of that, ladies. Okay, if you have a Bible, we're going to go to Luke chapter 9. This is the end of our series called The People Who Change. And uh, this whole time, we, we've been talking about this, guy, this idea that um, in order to uh, follow Jesus, in order to apprentice Jesus, we need to begin to order our lives around three different things. Being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. And, and we've taken that theme of becoming like Jesus and, and we're, we're doing this conversation about people who change. Actually, people who, at, at a deep level, transform to become more like Jesus. We've talked over and over again that it's not about behavior modification, um, that Jesus wasn't after you just trying to be a better person. Um, and, and we've kind of, kind of gotten sucked into that in, in church life, as, as many of us have grown up in the church. And so no matter if you're a pastor or a barista or a student or a teacher, doesn't matter. Uh, you're, you're called to become, be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did, and, and let that become the thing that transforms your life. Now, we're going to go back to Luke chapter 9 is where we started this whole thing, and we're going to kind of jump into it again um, and, and see kind of where this looks, where this takes us today, because... Um, there's a huge piece of what it looks like to follow Jesus that has to do with self-denial. And we're going to get into that. Here we go. Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Once Jesus was praying in private and his disciples uh, were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone, and he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed. And on the third day, he He'd be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple, my mathetes, must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. So on offer from Jesus, whoever wants to be uh, my disciple, whoever wants to be a disciple of Jesus, an apprentice, in order for that to happen... In order for us to be an apprentice, we must what? What, is it, what does it say in there? It says to deny, yeah, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. And at the center of discipleship, so the, at the center of what it looks like to follow Jesus is the cross. And I know that's not very Christmassy, because right now we're usually talking about manger scenes. But... At the center of what it looks like to follow Jesus is the cross. And the cross is, is, is kind of part of the pattern of what it looks like for us to be a disciple. Listen to this quote from a guy named Joel Green. He talks about crucifixion. He says, crucifixion was quintessentially a public affair. Naked and affixed to a, a stake, a cross, or a tree, the victim was subjected to savage ridicule by frequent passers-by, while the general populace was given a grim reminder of the fate of those who assert themselves 
against the authority of the state. So here's the thing when it comes to um, the cross. In the ancient Near East, it was an honor-shame culture. And it's really important for us to understand that because in that world, the most shameful way to die was by crucifixion. And it was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen, no matter what the crime. But crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst and anybody who was not Roman. Okay? And so it was so shameful that if you actually read the four Gospels account of the crucifixion, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they don't really describe it much at all. In fact, all we really get is one line from all four of them. And it says, and they crucified him. That's all we get. But it was so inhumane, this, this death penalty was so inhumane that they, it was just so shameful that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John decided not to describe the actual act of crucifixion. We know what it is based on historical records. But all that to say is this, the cross is not a cute symbol. It's not a logo on a church website. It's not art. It was an evocative symbol of death. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is Jesus uses the cross, a cross, as a picture of what it looks like to follow him. Like, these are Jesus' words. He says, if you want to follow me, you have to pick up your cross, deny yourself daily, and follow and really what he's saying is if you really want to live, you have to die. If you really want to be transformed, you have to deny yourself. Now, for some people, it actually meant death. Like Dietrich Bonhoeffer in World War II, um, famous uh, scholar, theologian, wrote The Cost of Discipleship. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And he actually did die at the hands of the SS near the end of the war. But let's just go through the disciples a bit. So when Jesus is sitting around and he's sharing all this, we just read out of Luke chapter 9. His disciples are with him. They're all alone. I don't know if you guys knew this, but I'm going to read through how some of the disciples died. James, first martyr, he was beheaded in Jerusalem by Herod. Matthew was killed by the sword in Ethiopia. Mark was dragged by horses through the streets of Alexandria. Luke was hung in Greece. Thomas was speared to death in India. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. And John was dipped alive in boiling oil and left on a rock in the middle of the Mediterranean. Merry Christmas, right? I mean, it's like... Now, here's the thing. I hope that the, should the need arise, you and I would be willing to suffer and die in our apprenticeship to Jesus. I, I hope that would be the case. I hope that would be true of me. But for most of us, that's really not, what, not, that's not what's facing us today, right? That's, that's really not our reality today. Most of us do not face the possibility of death in our apprenticeship to Jesus. You would right now if you lived in Syria or in other places, but it's not for you and me right now in Colorado. But we do face a different kind of death. John Calvin, the scholar and 
famous theologian, um, talks over and over again how following Jesus is all about self-denial. Over and over again in his writing. To say yes to Jesus is basically to say no to a thousand other things. And saying, for instance, saying yes to Jesus, saying no to spending your money and your time however you want. Saying yes to Jesus is saying no to a life of individualism and, and opening yourself up more and more to the community. Saying yes to Jesus is saying no to um, maybe that your sexuality is the most important thing about you. Saying yes to Jesus is saying no to a, a thousand other things. It's saying, it, basically the cross is saying whatever, whenever, wherever to Jesus. And for instance, I was reading this week um, the Knights Templar. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with that whole thing and in the mid, mid, and, uh, Middle Ages, but the Knights Templar, um, they would get, when they got baptized, they would get baptized with their sword out of the water. <laughs> and the reason why they did that was because they, they basically were saying, God, you can have all of me except for my sword. You can have all of my life except for how I carry out violence with this sword. Now, here's the thing. We laugh. We kind of maybe internally laugh at that. But at least they were honest, right? They were like, okay, God, I'm going to give you everything except for this sword. But here's the thing. We all do that. There is something we've held out of baptism. There's uh, uh, maybe a few things we've held out of baptism. And, and, and if we're honest, and some of us uh, have become a little bit more honest with our own, uh, our own selves in this regard, God, you can have all of this, but not this, is the idea. So I would argue that the way of Jesus is based on his life, his death, and his resurrection. The pattern of what it looks like to become like Jesus has to have all those things in it. His life, his death, and his resurrection. That's why when we get baptized, what happens is, is we are dying to ourselves and we are raised to new life. That something happens to us. That the old self is now gone and the new self is here. Now, we're at war all the time with what that looks like. And this is the pattern, really, of every apprentice to Jesus. It's this idea of self-denial. And self-denial is very difficult in, a, in an age that we live in of self-fulfillment. It's like the exact opposite of what we swim in every day. And the Gospels are full of self-denial. But I love Luke's version because he actually slides the word daily in. All the other gospels actually mention, take up your cross and follow me, but Luke throws in daily. And I love that because it is this ongoing thing for us, this ongoing renewal that has to happen in us. It's not a one-time event, but like this daily death that happens in us. Look at what Paul calls the flesh in, in Galatians 5. He says this, so I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the, of the flesh. 
For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. He goes on to list what the acts of the flesh are. The acts of the flesh are obvious, Paul says. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. Those of you who are into debauchery, just knock it off. Um, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then he goes on to say the, the contrary. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those of you who belong to Christ, King Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. There's this idea of the cross again. That Paul is bringing this idea that part of the pattern of following Jesus is the cross. Not for Jesus, but for us. Part of the pattern of following Jesus is crucifying things in our lives that are not of him. So here's the point I want to make. Paul, for Paul, your body, your person is the locus of your relationship with God. Not just your mind, not just your heart. We talk about the heart all the time, inviting Jesus into your heart. It's in your whole self. Now, at the same time, your body is also the battleground between the flesh and the spirit, meaning of what it looks like to be animated by the spirit and how our tendencies tend to be as human beings. So our flesh is our first, remember we, a few weeks ago we talked about our first order desires for food and sleep and sex and power and things like that. And then we talked about our second order desires that are actually of the spirit, that are actually our higher human desires animated by the spirit, love, joy, peace, kind of an inner disposition of Jesus. And every day you and I face a war between your body, your flesh, and your mind, and your person, and you feel that tension. You feel that tension. And, and some desires we have are evil, and, and, and some are, are beautiful and true, and we live in this tension, okay, between those desires, and so one of the key tasks to apprenticeship to Jesus is learning how to crucify some desires in order to experience resurrection life. That's like the key task. And over and over again on a daily basis, we have this. We have all these things that we have to like, like intentionally lean into. Now the cross is the foundation, okay? The foundation of apprenticeship to Jesus and transformation into his image. Like the cross is the picture of what it looks like. So when Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This is like this not optional piece. It's a non-optional piece. It's like, what does it look like for me tomorrow, for me later on this day to begin to lay down things in my life and crucify things in my life? so that I can experience resurrection life. Dallas Willard puts it like this, and he always puts it better than me. Self-denial is the overall settled condition of life in the kingdom of God, better described as death to self. In this and in, in this alone lies the key 
to the soul's restoration. Christian spiritual formation rests on this indispensable foundation of death to self and cannot proceed except insofar as that foundation is being firmly laid and sustained, meaning none of it will get you anywhere in your life unless you have the foundation of death to self. It, it, It starts there. Jesus saying that's where it starts. First, you have to die. And for a lot of people, this is just too much to ask. Listen to some of the people that Jesus comes in contact with in Luke chapter 9, a little bit later on. It says, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And I love this. He's like chomping at the bit. He's like, Jesus, let's do this right now. Sorry, I just lost my spot. There it is. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. That's Jesus for saying, are you sure? Right? Are you sure you really want to do this? He said to another man, follow me. And this guy replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now we think we, he actually had a dead father. Some scholarship actually thinks that's a Hebrew, that's like a Jewish um, kind of euphemism for, first let me go back and take over the family business and walk my parents into retirement. Kind of an idea. And... Um, this idea that let me get things cared for first and I'll join you in a few years. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, (laughs) but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, across the spectrum, like when you read some of these, you have people who are chomping at the bit to follow Jesus and you have people that are like a little bit more like dragging their feet. And I think we all experience that at the same time. Like I think there's some of us that like have this desire and this chomping at the bit to follow Jesus and yet there's some things in our lives that we're dragging our feet on. And we find all sorts of ways to to justify, okay, our lack of self-denial. Like we're really good at it. I know I am. The problem with this guy, this last uh, character, is that this man doesn't, it's not that he doesn't believe in Jesus. It's not that he doesn't believe Jesus is a rabbi or Messiah or even Lord. That's not the issue. The problem is he's not willing to pay the price to be an apprentice of Jesus. Those are two different things, right? The issue here is not apprenticeship or atheism. The issue here, and this is where I've been really wrestling, is it, it is apprenticeship versus a vague, non-committal, consumeristic faith that wants all the benefits of Jesus without the cost. That's the issue. Last week, what I said, we talked, we were actually over here, with, we were over a little further in a smaller room. And I said, um, the hardest way to follow Jesus is to live like everyone else and add discipleship to Jesus on top of it. And I think that's what a lot of us try to do. We're like, I'm just going to live like how everybody else lives. I'm going to spend money like how everybody else lives. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be an individual and a consumer and, a, and, a, you know, and an American kind of critic. And, and I'm going to do all the things that everybody else does. And then I'm going to add following Jesus to that. And, you're, and it's bound failure's coming. And one of my favorite things about Jesus is he's just so straight up with 
with, his, with people. He, there's no bait and switch with Jesus. There's no, there's no pitch and you know, hope they fall for it. He says, it will cost you. It will cost me. And here's another story. There's Luke 14. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, oh, by the way, before we get to this, whenever there's a large crowd, Jesus always tries to say something unpopular. And I love that. That's like one of my favorite things about Jesus. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, yes even his own, their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, here's the thing, family-based culture, your most important thing in your life was your family, uh, your origin, your, your, your family lineage. Um, and so this is hyperbole. He's not really saying, he, he's just like, love me more than the deepest, most passionate love of your heart, including yourself. And then he says, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Here it is again. Suppose if one of you wants to build a tower, any tower people in the room? Any? No? Well, just in case. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule, ridicule you, saying, that person began to build a tower and they couldn't finish Here's another hypothetical story right here. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. That is intense language. Give up everything you have. Like, wow, what is that? What does that mean? Well, it can't mean give up everything you have. He's just, he's just being like kind of ridiculous, right? Well, it looks like, it looks like it's give up everything you have. Jesus is saying to follow me, it will cost you. And before you say, I am in, you need to do the cost-benefit analysis of what that looks like. And ultimately, when you do that, I think Jesus is saying, you will get far more than you give. You will, you will receive far more than you lay down. Matthew 18 is this crazy conversation he has with a guy that is like, this is like all of our worst nightmares in a conversation. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a common question of the day. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. All these I've done since I was a boy. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. This is a great question because most commentaries always ask, like, is this command for everybody or is it just for this guy? 
I think if you're asking that question, you need to wrestle with it. Because what if Jesus was going to ask you that? What if Jesus was asking you to sell everything you have and give to the poor? It's a pretty uncomfortable question. As we're loading up for Christmas, right? And that is a very uncomfortable question. I think it would be spiritual malpractice of me to say to you that uh, that was just for that one guy. Here's the thing with this ruler. That might have been his big thing, right? It might have been his big thing, the money thing. might have been a really big thing. And you might look in the mirror and say, that's eh, not a big thing for me. But there's something about money that does this thing to us with status. And he had this attachment to his lineage because he was coming from a wealthy family. He's young. Money came from family. Power, there's notoriety. All that sum, sums up kind of this guy's life. And it says he went away sad. And it happened. And it happens all the time. And I know people who, li- who believe that Jesus is Messiah and live with a low-grade unhappiness because they just can't bring themselves to follow Jesus. Believe Jesus is Messiah. But when it comes to denying themselves, taking up their cross and following him, it isn't always there. And sometimes I stare that person in the mirror. And I love the story about this man, this rich young ruler, because he's nameless. Because that man is actually every single one of us in some way or the other. And he's me on a regular basis. It's, it has always been hard to take up your cross, one's cross, and follow Jesus. And it, and it won't be easy. And so there are things like you say when you want to kind of, these are things, okay, by the way, these are things you say when you want to shrink your church at Christmas time. Okay, these are, <laughs> just like, just be honest. Like, I'm like, we're talking about the cross at Christmas. Um, how do you talk about self-denial? Like, how do you approach self-denial in an age of self-fulfillment? I love this uh, writer here I'm about to share with you. It's a guy named Sky Jathani, and he wrote this book um, called The Divine Commodity. He's actually written a number of books, but listen to what he says here. He says, my secret is that I want to be relevant and popular. I want my desires fulfilled and my pain minimalized. I want a manageable relationship with an institution rather than a messy relationship messy relationships with real people. I want to be transformed into the image of Christ by showing up at entertaining events rather than through the hard work of discipleship. I want to wear my faith on my sleeve and not look at the darkness in my heart. And above all, I want a controllable God. I want a divine commodity to do my will on earth as well as in heaven. That's like, wow, he's messed up. Oh, wait, I messed up too. There's something about this tension, right? Like there's this kingship. That's why Jesus talks about it being a kingdom and the kingdom of the earth and the kingdom of heaven. And he talks about these two different kingdoms. And both of these kingdoms 
require our allegiance. Jesus says over and over again, that's why you can't serve two masters. Money and, and you know, all these, you can call it whatever you want, but money's a part of one kingdom. Jesus is a part of another one. And this isn't a ser- sermon about money. This is a sermon about allegiance. And so when we look at our deep conflict that we have, right, like every day in our mind, in our heart, in our body, we have this tension about what allegiance we have. And it's even in the church. A um, number of years ago, kind of from kind of more of the Pentecostal movement came something called the prosperity gospel. And then the prosperity gospel got like just totally thrown into mainstream by a guy named Joel Olstein. By the way, let me just say this. Whenever there is a word in front of the word gospel, you should run from it. Okay. So prosperity gospel, social gospel, like it's just gospel, okay? So it's a little trick I learned. Um, so, but here's the thing, and I can bag on the pro- prosperity gospel all the time, and I have. But I read something the other day that made me just totally um, think about my own life. And this is a long quote, and if you guys are tired of quotes, there's other churches around. <laughs> Because <laughs> most of this, like, you think I come up with all this stuff. Like, no, I just read some people who are really smart. So listen to this. This comes from a guy named Mark Sayers. And if you've never read Mark Sayers, I would encourage you to do so. He says, we subtly imbibe the implicit prosperity gospel through consumerism and advertising, but also through viewing the lives of other Christians who seem to lead amazing, meaningful, pleasure-filled lives. We only have to trawl through our Instagram feeds to find pastors, believing musicians, artists, authors, and activists who seem to live incredible lives. These people seem to have the best of both worlds. They follow Jesus and get to travel, live in cool neighborhoods, hang with really interesting people, have incredible marriages, and rock the single life, and connect with the most amazing people. Listen to this, though. We do not recognize the way in which the implicit prosperity gospel affects us until our unspoken expectations are not met. We understand that God would ask people in the two-thirds world to give up things, (coughs) sorry, to sacrifice, but our heresy hidden under the surface is our belief that God would not ask Western people to deny themselves. We have this tricky thing, right? So we really want to live in both worlds. I mean, I want to be really generous and not worry about money. (laughs) I want character, (coughs) but I avoid suffering and confrontation at all costs. I want humility, but but I don't want humiliation, right? Right? I want patience, but I don't want to wait. I want kindness, but I don't want consistent people in my life that agitate me. I want to hear God's voice, but I don't want to slow down and make time and listen. I want the life Jesus promises, life to the full, but I don't want to take up my cross. And I live in this tension, and my guess is, so do you.
See, here's the thing. A lot of you might right now be thinking of something in your life that is just something you've got to lay down. It might be a relationship. It might be a habit. It might be whatever in your life. But I was thinking about this all week for me, and I'm like, wow, what, what is it? And usually whenever I do a message on denying, self-denial and things like that, there's something that comes to the surface, something that I've got to deal with. And I'm sure there's people in my family that could tell me exactly what I need to lay down. But... The point is, is that I think that for me and for many of us, there are a thousand chances to lay something down during a week. There are a thousand different ways to die. A thousand small deaths that lead to one massive life. Now, this isn't an emotional pitch. This isn't, this isn't any of that. This is just a way for us to create space to ask the question to ask myself, is there an obstacle between me and a life of discipleship? Is there something in the way of it? Something I still am holding out of the water of baptism, saying, God, you can have all of me except this. One last teaching I wanna just read over you of Jesus. It's one verse. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Jesus' day and age, it was, there was no banks. You know this. If you had money, it was probably gold or silver. And what you would do to keep it safe is you would hide it. You would bury it, and some people would die with treasure buried on their property. The idea behind this is that this man found this treasure, and there was so much treasure, instead of just taking it, like hypothetically, Jesus, Jesus is talking about how it was such a big find that he went and sold everything else he had so he could just buy the whole field and have the treasure. Was it a sacrifice? Yes. He sold everything he had to buy that. So in the economy of the kingdom, it's this idea that whatever you think you're holding out on, holding out of the water and you can't give up, you can't, there's so much more that you gain by letting that go. Like in the economy of the kingdom, you can't outgive God. Like the promise is that you're going to lay all this down and you may not ever find it on this side of heaven, on this side of resurrection, you will not get that back. But the life you will experience far outweighs what you give up. So to end, we have to count the cost. Now, and here's the thing, and, I've, and I'm... I'm afraid to say this because I think some of you will freak out when I say it, but I've become weary of altar calls and salvation pitches because what they tend to become is I believe in Jesus now and, and I just add Jesus to my life. Now, there's a counting of the cost to follow Jesus, but there's also a counting of the cost to not following Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it the cost of non-discipleship. Like, we pay either way. <laughs> we do. 
And the Jesus call is the one of self-denial that will lead to much more in the future, much more fullness and fruit in life. And the other one will cost us. A guy named David Brenner, this is my last quote, a guy named David Brenner wrote, wrote this. He said, St. Ignatius of Loyola notes that sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. Until I am absolutely convinced of this, I will do everything I can to keep my hands on the controls of my life because I think I know better than God what I need for fulfillment. So the question is, do you trust Jesus? Do you trust Jesus enough? Is, is Jesus the real true king? Is your allegiance to Jesus one that's going to actually allow you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him? Because, folks, I, that, this is where real transformation is. This is where it really hits. And we could learn all the things we Jesus and about the Bible and all that kind of stuff. But until we walk a road and begin to deny ourselves and take up this death to self, we'll miss out on what Jesus really wants to do in us. So let me pray.